0: If you'll take your copy of God's Word, we'll be back in Proverbs, and this morning we'll be in Proverbs chapter 3. So Proverbs chapter 3, as we continue our summer of wisdom. And several years ago, I was on a business trip um, to Montreal to speak at a conference, and I was going with my project manager, and he brought along his girlfriend. And so my project manager had rented a car because the airport was a long way from the hotel, and he had this newfangled device. This was before smartphones and Google Maps. He had a dash GPS that was about this big, and he was so excited about it. But he gets uh, to the rental car, and he starts to plug in, and he starts to talk about this GPS, and he says, you know, I'm not so sure about this thing. I used it the other day, and to go home, it didn't take me the way I usually go home. English professors would say, this is a cause of foreshadowing. And so we get in the car, he plugs the GPS in, he puts the address of the hotel in, and we start to drive out of the airport, get on the highway to move to downtown, and we come to a large intersection. There's three ways to go, left, straight, right. The GPS says, please get in the, the left lane. We know that downtown is actually right, and so my project manager, my boss, says, I'm not so sure I trust this thing. Get in the left lane. Please get in the left lane. Get in the left lane. It's one of those weird intersections that's counterintuitive. You've got to go left to go right. You may know those. And so my project manager is a Ph.D. times two. He's very intelligent, hyper-smart. He has all these awards and accolades to his name, but he does not follow the GPS. He goes, this can't be right. So he decides to go straight. And so he goes straight, and you hear those beautiful words from the GPS about 20 seconds later, recalculating. All right, not going the right way. We get off the highway in a very sketchy part of town. Remember, we're in a foreign country. Uh, We have everything that we own in our backpacks and suitcases, and we pull off into the sketchy neighborhood into an apartment complex where there's all these scantily clad women standing out front and all these dudes, rough-looking dudes, sitting over here in lawn chairs. And I'm going, I've seen this movie before. And so we didn't trust the GPS, so we get lost in a foreign country, in a place that I do not want to be, and I'm slouching in the back seat like this, and he says to his girlfriend, not to me, don't get out of the car. I'm going to go ask for directions. I was like, you have a GPS that's telling you to get back on the freeway. No, he gets out of the car, walks over, talks to these people, and thankfully we didn't die. We didn't get mugged. He gets back in the car. They give him directions. We get back on, and guess what? We're still following the GPS. And so this guy, in his intelligence and in his wisdom, thought, I know better than this machine. I'm not going to go how it says to go. I'm going to go the way I think it should go. It's a case of foolishness that could have landed in disaster. And so think about our own lives, that we have paths to follow. We have ways to walk. And there are all kinds of people and things and uh, wisdom coming at us to tell this is the way Go this way, don't go this way. And so who are we listening to? What voices are we paying attention to to direct and guide our steps? So last week we looked at chapter 2, the path of wisdom, how God is calling us to go find wisdom, and more importantly, to ask Him for wisdom. And the definition we used for wisdom was this, coming from last week. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal, together with the surest means of obtaining it. Wisdom implies and gives us the confidence to choose what is right to deal with the realities of life. So how we operate in this world depends on wisdom. And wisdoms that we saw last week are mostly moral, choosing the good from the bad. But a lot of the decisions we make in life are morally neutral, right? Wisdom helps us, yes, know right from wrong, but it also helps us choose from what is good and what is best. What should I do today? What job should I take? What city should I live in? What kind of car do I buy? What, what do I shop for groceries? What cereal do I eat in the morning? Wisdom gives us confidence to choose what is right and good and God-honoring in the practical, everyday decisions that we make. And so this morning as we come to chapter 3, we'll see how wisdom applies in all of these realms. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to read Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Solomon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find Favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. So, from these verses, we will see two principles that we must integrate into our lives to navigate the realities of this life. How we can operate, how we can choose what is right and what is good in the moral and practical dimensions of our life. And so, how do we do that? How do we integrate wisdom into our life? Two principles. First, We must secure godly wisdom. We must secure godly wisdom. Last week we talked about going and finding wisdom from God Himself. And now in the first four verses here, Solomon is telling his son, he's telling us to secure his wisdom. And how do we do that? Well, two ways. First, to secure godly wisdom, we must internalize God's command. We must internalize God's command. Because the instruction here in chapter 3 is to not forget to keep, to guard, to remember the commandments of God. This is the recurring thing of Proverbs, of Deuteronomy, and of really the whole Old Testament. Remember God's Word. Follow Him, because we are forgetful people, are we not? This is a father telling his son and us to not forget, to listen, to remember, to pay attention, because we forget out of weakness. We forget because we get distracted Or we just ignore what has been said. You don't believe me? How many times did you tell your child to clean their room this week? Because they forgot, or they got distracted, or they just ignored you. But the Father's instruction here to us is to fight against those tendencies, to strengthen our minds so we can remember, to pay attention and not lose focus, to humble ourselves, to listen and obey. So how do we remember? How do we do this? Verse 3, the second part of verse 3 says this. Bind them, that's God's commands, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. So does this mean get a gold chain, take your Bible, punch a hole in it, put the Bible on a chain and wear it around your neck? I don't think that's a good fashion statement and be very awkward. We're not to tattoo this onto our chest or our, the walls of our heart. What does this mean? It means to internalize it, to memorize it, to put it inside our hearts and our minds. Last week we saw that wisdom will come into our hearts as we go and find it. And so as we study, as we read, as we memorize, as we listen, as we obey the words of God, it will become part of who we are. It will sink deep into our souls and overflow into our actions. So we will internalize God, and this takes Time. It takes discipline. It doesn't happen automatically. It takes practice. This is why there are so many commands here to not forsake it, to cling to it, to hold tightly. And so this takes time as it seeps into the morrow, the morrow, and the depths of our souls. And it wisdom comes inside of us. It starts to develop and shape us. And it shapes our Character. This is not simple behavior modification. It's much deeper than that. Wisdom flows and flows into us to mature us, to make us more well-rounded. A character formed by internally, internalizing God's commandments. And as God's word seeps into us, secondly, we must embrace God's character. Because remember, God is working on our character, and he's not working out of a void. He's following a pattern. Our nature, our identity is not novel. They're based not on something he just makes up. It's based on the person and work of Jesus. And so he's forming us, he's shaping us into the pattern of Christ. And so we must embrace God's character so we can become more like him. The first part of verse 3 says this, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. And so it seems like an odd pair of words to use here, and on my first couple we read through, I put a little question mark over these two words, steadfast love and faithfulness. It seems strange, and it's even more confusing in our English translation because it seems like, well, we must be the ones who must be steadfast. We must be the ones who are loving and to be faithful in our dealings with other people. And yes, that's true, and Proverbs itself will bear that out, but there's something much deeper In these two words. There's two greater truths behind this. So these words, the steadfast love and faithfulness, are part of God's covenant revelation of himself. So God reveals himself to Moses as one who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See here from Exodus 34, God's revelation of himself. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see that God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Troy mentioned it in, from Psalm 103. So this command in verse 3 is telling us to embrace, not these things for our own sake, but to embrace these that are in the person and character of God Himself. So to cling to God, to lay hold on Him, to not forsake Him, not abandon Him, don't disown Him, don't renounce Him. How might we do that? How might we forsake the love and faithfulness of God? We may just simply forget We get distracted by the things of this this world. We neglect it. We don't seek Him day by day. We focus on ourselves, our pursuits, our paths, our priorities. The call here is to pursue the Lord above all else, to internalize His commands by clinging to Him and His promises first and foremost. So do you want to secure wisdom? Then keep close to the Lord. You want to find wisdom? Then cling to God. Embrace Him. Do not abandon Him. Do not let Him go. Remember when Jacob was wrestling the angel through the night? And the angel of the Lord says, Let me go, Jacob. And Jacob says, No. I'm going to cling to you until you tell me your name and you bless me. Because he wanted the blessing. He wanted to know God. This is the clinging. This is the embrace. This is the not forsaking Because we need God, because we need His wisdom. And there's an urgent need for wisdom, to secure wisdom. The words here are talking about guarding, keeping, securing, locking it tight. And this is an ever-vigilant task, because we're always at risk of forgetting. We're always at risk of being distracted, because our hearts are weak, we're fickle. The world's going to distract us. Sin will deceive us, and Satan has set out to destroy us. We must be constantly seeking to secure wisdom from God's character and His commandments. So I was working in the yard yesterday, and so during summertime, everything wants to attack our house. And so you have weeds, and branches, and ants, and wasps, and bees, and cockroaches, and everything else that creeps and crawls. And so our twins always see an ant, they're like, uh, uh, uh. Uh, uh, uh. And I found out they had spilled a whole cup of Cheerios on the porch yesterday morning, and there were ants everywhere. This is a constant task for us to keep bugs and weeds and all the thorns and thistles out of our house. We have to keep nature at bay, right? Constantly. This is the same thing in our battle to find wisdom. The world is creeping in. We must keep it out and secure our hearts and minds with God's commandments and His character. And so we must secure godly wisdom. Keep it. Guard it. Second principle. So this is moving into verses 5 through 8. And so we must secure godly wisdom, but secondly, declare godly dependence. Declare godly dependence. So in a couple weeks, we will celebrate the great holiday of 4th of July, otherwise officially known as Independence Day. And so Independence Day, we celebrate when the colonists came and wrote the Declaration of Independence, it said this, these united colonies are, and of right, ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the great state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved as free and independent states. And all the Americans says, amen. So we celebrate the independence of America in just a few weeks. This passage in Proverbs is not a declaration of independence. It is a declaration of dependence. And every day should be dependence day for the Christian. But this goes against the very core of our nature. As humans and especially as Americans. I'm free to do what I want, when I want, how I want it. You can't tread on me. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me where to go. But that line of thinking, this independent thinking is antithetical to our lives and thinking as believing Christians. We are completely, totally, emphatically reliant upon God who made us, who sustains us, and who saves us. Any other way of thinking is foolishness according to the Bible. So you want to be, you want to be truly wise? Then declare true dependence. So we come to verses 5 and 6, which are probably the most familiar commands in the book of Proverbs. But this is more than a verse that should be, should be put on your coffee cups or cross-stitched on your wall or decaled on your car. This may look simple, but this is much richer and weightier than we often realize. There's a gravitas to this verse because it infiltrates every nook and cranny of our soul, of our lives. What does dependence look like? It looks It looks. It looks like this. It looks like trust in God. It's a trust in God. It's an all-encompassing trust. There's nothing here that should be left out. There is no corner, no area, no room of your life that God does not declare mine. Everything is His. You see this in verse 5 when He says, All your heart Our heart is who we are. Not one area, not one shadow is left. It encompasses every part of us. All of our lives are not broken up into different departments. It says, okay, God, you can have this room over here, but I've got all this over here. God says, all of it is mine. Love your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, Jesus tells us. So not only all your heart, who we are, but secondly, verse 6, all your ways. What we do, the Hebrew uh, word here is basically saying all of our comings and goings that we do every day. This swallows every activity of life. The direction and choices that we make, the things that we care about, the things that we do, our finances, our children, our sexuality, our TV habits, our careers, our words, our relationships, our recreation. All of this falls under the umbrella of God's control and sovereign Providence. And wisdom says, wisdom comes into our lives and starts directing us and guiding us through life. And it tells us who we should be and what we should do. And so the word here, trust in God, is a complete and total dependence upon the Lord. It's throwing oneself down upon, clinging to. Ray Ortland will say it's a belly flop into God's arms. It's my 19-year-old son who puts his arms back and his head down and starts running as fast as he can at mom and dad. This is the idea of complete and total dependence. A.W. Tozer, he comments on this fact in this way. You can see the quote on the screen. He says that pseudo-faith always arranges a way out to serve God in case God fails it. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. And not since Adam stood upon the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted him. And so do you have a pseudo-faith? Do you have a functional faith in something other than God? Yeah, you can know about him. You can obey him. You can do all the right things, but you still may not trust God with everything that you have. So is God your only hope, or is he only a backup? Do we, yeah, yeah, we're going to trust in God, but yeah, I still have my stock portfolio and my bank account. I still have a really good resume and a promising career. I still have my beauty and my looks, my athleticism, my intelligence, my savvy, my wisdom. Do we trust God with everything that we have? We're we trying to hold on to these little saviors. And the, the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, he says, Do not lean on your own understanding. Be not wise in your own understanding. Eyes. He says, forsake and flee self-confidence and self-reliance. One of Job's friends puts it this way in the book of Job. He says, for we are but of yesterday and know nothing. For our days on earth are shadow. And so we may be very intelligent. We may be very educated. We may be very wise according to this world. But it's a thimble full of wisdom and intelligence. This idea of leaning, of trusting, of faith is one of reliance. It's a picture of a crane, or a cane, or a crutch. And the things that we trust in, our bank accounts, or our beauty, or athleticism, our career, all those will fail us at some point. We're all leaning on something to hold us up. What is that thing? Because all of the things that we trust in this world... They'll all come to disappoint us in time. They will all break, some more catastrophically than others, some more sooner than others. Trusting in any of these things is the very definition of foolishness. And many of these pseudo-saviors are really based on ourselves, who we are and what we can do, our wisdom, our understanding, our abilities. But you know what? We are all fickle, finite, fallible, fading and flagging, all of us. Trusting in yourself is the height of foolishness. Being wise in our own eyes is a self-deceived wish dream. Well, don't believe me? Well, think about this. If you've ever watched any kind of a war or a singing competition or dance competition, and you get to those people in the first rounds, and they think they are God's gift to music. And they come and they sing before the judges and everybody's like going like this. You've heard this, right? These people are self deceived I have the greatest voice. My mama says I can sing like an angel. Or have you ever thought about your own life and you, you hear yourself talk in your own head which you don't really hear your own voice. Then you hear a recording of yourself and you're like, do I really sound like that? Or you, you get all dressed up and you go out and somebody takes your picture and you see the picture and you're like, do I really look like that? I looked really good in the mirror before I walked out of here. I sounded really good in the shower singing in here. That's the height of self-deception, right? We come face-to-face with reality. That's being wise in our own eyes. We think we have wisdom. We come out into the world and we are like, we're not so smart. We're not so wise after all. We need wisdom. And wisdom is trusting God. And the, the other side of the same coin, we trust in God, but we also must submit to God. We must trust and submit. Last week we saw that wisdom comes to the humble To the contrite. Those who realize that they're not so wise after all. Those who come to God in humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Wendell Berry says that wisdom is knowledge balanced with ignorance. Wisdom is knowledge balanced with ignorance. Wisdom starts with, I don't know, I need help. It's submission to a higher authority. In verse 6, we see this, in all your ways acknowledge him and the word acknowledge is not just like a tip of the cat a tip of the hat to the lords and yeah thanks jesus thanks for your help it's like seeing somebody who's just won a championship and says yeah thank you jesus for all the strength let me blast my opponents you know they kind of just in their thanks of uh, where they got there they just kind of give god a head nod and a high five that's not acknowledgement here the word acknowledge here is to know god in everything that we do, do we know God? Do we know His character? Do we know His ways? Do we know His attitudes, His desires, and His goals? Are we like Paul in Philippians chapter 3? Everything in my life is pushing to know Christ in His resurrection. And the NIV translates this directly. It says, in all your ways, submit to Him. Acknowledging God focusing on Him means all of our life, everything in our daily life, is underneath God's commandment, underneath God's plans. So are the patterns, are the rhythms of our life shaped and formed by His glory, by His character? Do we consider God's wisdom in our decisions? And can others, when they observe our lives, can others see God's wisdom through us? Or do they say, that's a pretty smart guy right there. Look how smart, look how intelligent, look how savvy he is. Do they see your wisdom, or do they see God's wisdom? A wise life consists in trusting God, but also submitting wholeheartedly and unconditionally. We do not trust God if we still cling to some semblance of having our own way. All your heart, all your ways, everything comes under Christ. We also know that we can trust and submit to God because He does not fail. He is sure. He is firm. And that leads us to a rest in God. Our trust and our submission leads to a rest. We can find rest in God because He has promised that it will come. We can throw our whole weight upon Him in faith and submission because He tells us and assures us that He will not fail us. We see this passage, these 12 verses, balanced between commandments and promises. Six commandments, six promises. These promises provide a motivation for how and why we should trust and submit to God with reckless abandonment. These commandments give us instructions on how to do that because we know that the Lord is not a tyrant. He is not a dictator demanding submission and obedience from a subject. No, he's a loving father who wants the best for his children and graciously provides us what we need to trust and obey. So let's look at two of these examples. Uh, verse 2. At the end of verse 2, if we keep God's commandments, then peace will be added to us. And so thank you, Daryl, for praying for peace. This is God's peace that comes into our lives. It's a wholeness. It's an assurance. It's a complete Security when we trust and submit to god. We know we trust that he's going to keep us and he's going to give us peace Isaiah 26 points to this you keep him in perfect Peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. God doesn't let us down Paul picks up in philippians and the peace of god which surpasses all understanding Will guard your hearts and minds in christ jesus So as an infant with his father or his mother, they can find complete rest and security from the turmoil of the day when they rest in their father's arms. That's the image here. So not only will peace come to you in verse 6, he says he will make his path straight, another promise. So he's comparing the straight path with the crooked and the winding path, the perverted path of the wicked. He will direct your path leading to life and goodness. This is not an easy road. This is not an easy path. But it's a path that will lead to His promise of glory. Because this path leads to Him. And it's the path that He walks with us. The psalmist picks this up in Psalm 73. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you receive me to glory. Whom am I in heaven But you, says the psalmist. So you see that? He's saying, God is holding my hand, walking with me, guiding me, and bringing me to Himself. This is the promise that we have, that God walks with us, shows us the way, and then gives us and grants us life and godliness forever. These are the promises that God gives us to rest. So as we remember these promises, we find much encouragement from God's storehouse of grace. His love and His mercy overflow to us as we obey Him, as we take and secure His wisdom, as we embrace His character and we depend on Him with everything that we have. And so let's apply this in the remaining moments together. Let's look at three applications, three examples of this, of how and where and why we should depend on God. First of all, what does this look like? What does this look like for the unbeliever? If you are not a Christian here today, you need to know that trust and dependence starts with your faith, your belief in what God has done for you through the work and person of Jesus. And so trusting Him for your eternal salvation. Because you may be thinking, you may be trusting in the wisdom that, "Ah, there's really no God at all. And if there's no God, there's no judgment. There's no life after this. There's no consequences. Or you may think that, well, God's just going to let everybody in at the end. You may think in your intelligence that I've got it all figured out. Jesus is only an option. He's a great guy, but eh, God's going to make everything right in the end. Or you may just think, ah, my good works, God's going to accept those. My sincerity, my devotion, my good actions, God's going to say, yeah, come on in. Are you trusting in those thoughts? This line of thinking, this reliance and trusting, In your own works, your own ideas, your own wisdom will ultimately end up in disaster, says the Bible. It will end in darkness and the doom of hell. The way to trust and submit to God if you're an unbeliever is to turn to Jesus and be saved. To know that He has died for you. To acknowledge your sin. To repent of that sin and to trust Him to deliver you from the crooked and perverted ways. Trust Him. His death and his resurrection for you and run full on into his embrace to find rest for your soul for eternity. Because we'll all spend eternity somewhere. This part of our life here is only a sliver. It's only a moment in our lives. What are you leaning on for now and for the rest of it? Is it a person or an action or a wisdom? Is the idea that you lean on? Is it strong enough? Is it hardy enough to carry you through eternity? I'd wager it's not if it's not Jesus. Lean and trust in Him in salvation. Wisdom is saying that I'm a sinner, and God is a great Savior. And so we must trust in Him for our salvation. But what about if we've been saved for a long time, for quite a while? Well, we still need to trust and obey God. We need to follow His wisdom and commandments. And Solomon, in the Proverbs, gives us two examples in verses 9 and 10, 11 and 12. And so, two kind of big categories in our lives. He says we need to trust God in plenty, and we need to trust God in pain. We trust God in plenty, in prosperity, when the life is good, and we trust God in the painful, in the hard, and in the difficult. So first, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So here's a picture of what we call the good life. This is prosperity. This is wealth that is overflowing. Everything is just smoothly sailing along. This is where we all want to be, right? Some of you may be here right now. And it took me a minute to figure out why in, in the world does he go from trusting and submitting to God, doing all this and then turning right around, this seems like this, Break to honor God with your wealth. And so it took me a minute to realize that our trust, our hopes, our wisdom is often found in our pocketbook or our finances or our portfolios, our ability to make money. Wealth, for many of us, is an easy God to put our trust into. And so when we experience ease and comfort and wealth and everything is going good, God almost seems unnecessary. And so, how do we trust? How do we submit to God in everything when everything's going smoothly and well and times are plentiful and overflowing? Well, Solomon tells us that honor the Lord with your wealth. And honor here is to treat the, war, treat the Lord as weighty, as heavy, to esteem, to worship Him above all. So, you want to know what you regard, what you honor, what you revere the most? Follow the money. Look at your bank statement. Read your credit card account. The people or person that we honor the most is usually ourselves. We spend money on ourselves and those closest to us. The antidote to wealth, to honor God, is giving. Giving money away to honor the Lord. This is giving to others in need. Giving to the church. Giving to missions. And you're afraid, well, maybe, what, what, what if God's going to call me like the rich, young, ruler to give away everything and to move the jungle? Well, I pray he does that, but I have a feeling most of us in this room, God's not going to call us to give everything away. But he may be calling us to give a percentage away. He may not give you uh, an ultimatum that says, all right, sell everything you have 100%, give it to the poor, give it to the church, give it to missions. He's not going to tell us to give 100%, but what if he tells you to ask, hey, can you give 10 Percent. You want to trust God and submit to his plan in plenty? Give your best. Give your first fruits, he says in verse nine. That's what we get first, our best, our brightest. We give those away. And when we give those things away, we are showing that we trust in God. We acknowledge, we know that none of the things that we have belongs to us anyway. We're all stewards of it. We recognize it all comes from Him. Secondly, we also trust in Him when we give things away, knowing that when we give things away, He's going to take care of us. He's going to provide for us. And we submit our plans and our desires to pursue a heavenly and godly treasure above all that's going to look different to the world. In plenty, we must submit to God and honor Him in all the things that we do. And that's when life is going great. But what a happens if life is not. So think about these events. Inflation, stagflation, rising crime, energy crisis, social unrest, violence, recession, racial tension, bear markets, shortages, impending climate disaster, an ascendant Russia, high interest rates, threat of nuclear war, incompetent government, and moral upheaval. Painful times come often and with regularity. And you may think that I got all those from this week's headlines. No, that was the 70s, complete with bad music and strange fashions. We're living in the 70s again. Because we didn't start the fire, it was always burning since the world's been turning. Painful times are here, and they will continue to be here. They're part and parcel of life. And so when we come to a place and we are like, oh, I never saw this coming... Why is this happening? Why does one thing keep stacking on top of one another? Whether it's a global or national crisis, or even if it hits closer to home, we live in painful and turbulent times a lot. So what do we do? The Bible speaks about good and plentiful times, but it also speaks of hard and painful. That's where verses 11 and 12 instruct us. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father of the son in whom he delights. So he's saying here that we can do everything right. We can make wise choices. We can live righteously. We can follow the Lord. We can honor the God, honor God with our wealth. You can do everything according to what we think is good and right, and our life can still end up pretty bad. Hurt and sorrowful circumstances and hardship do not mean that God is angry with you, that he is punishing you. He doesn't mean he's neglectful. It does not mean he is an evil father. The Proverbs are rich in idealism. But verses 11 and 12 give us a dose of realism. Because life in this plane, life under the sun, is often difficult and hard. But notice what the, the author says, that we must embrace hardship and suffering. We should not to despise it. We are not to go weary of his discipline. And the word discipline here is not punishment. The Lord, as a father, is teaching his children through painful trials and circumstances. One of the best illustrations that I could think of about this is the people of Israel wandering in the desert. Remember, they've been wandering in the desert for several weeks, and they don't have anything to eat, and they don't have anything to drink. And so they come to Moses complaining, and God sends them manna. He sends them water. He sends them Quail to satisfy and sustain them. And reflecting back on this experience, Moses says this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, And you, the people of Israel, shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live on bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. Remember the circumstances they're walking in the desert where there is nothing but rock and sand. They don't have food. They don't have water. But also notice the Lord's control. Notice the Lord's sovereignty, His providence here. He leads them into the desert, and He lets them hunger. I don't know if I'd ever really focused on that phrase. God let them hunger. He allowed their suffering. And it's not like He's withholding steak, and potatoes, and champagne, and a Wi-Fi password. He doesn't give them air conditioning. No, he withholds the basic things they need to survive. Manna was not a luxury. Water was not a privilege. They're necessary. Why does God do this? Why does God lead his people into the desert? He tells us here, and he tells us in Proverbs, he does that to humble us to press the people of Israel, to press us into trusting Him alone. It's a discipline. As a discipline as sons and as daughters. As a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. The Lord approves, catch this, him who He loves. As a father and a son in whom He delights. It is the neglected and hated child who does not receive discipline. It is the hated child who does not receive instruction and counsel from his father. It is the Lord's love as he's disciplining us, allowing us to go through these hard times so it will humble us and push us back to him. Because aren't the times in our lives where we learn the most the hardest times? Discipline and hardship act as a catalyst, as a spark to push us onto God. We don't understand that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. Trials strip us of all the entanglements, all the crutches that we lean upon. When the storm comes and knocks out all of our foundations, what are we resting on? I've been reading a book by John Owen, the Puritan, and I've been wrestling with this quote for several weeks. He speaks to this trust in God, he says this, In every disaster, God is calling us to entrust ourselves, our families, and our enjoyments to His sovereign will and wisdom. Why? so that we may be ready to part with all things when he calls, and that without any regrets. God is making wings for men's riches. He is shaking their homes. He is taking away all their visible defenses of their lives. He is proclaiming the uncertainty and instability of man's life. So the, o- so the only thing that will give us rest and peace is to entrust everything to his sovereign will and pleasure. This is the way to mortify self and love for the world and the things that are in the world. Discipline and hardship and sorrow and suffering push us into the embrace of God. In plenty and in pain, God is disciplining us to trust and submit to Him alone. This is wisdom. Plenty and prosperity, along with pain and sorrow, are tests in our lives. Will we learn to trust? Will we learn to be wise? Why does God allow this into our life? What good is this? How do we know he is faithful and good to his people? The writer of Hebrews picks up on this concept. He quotes these verses in Hebrews chapter 12. But at the very beginning of that chapter, in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who with joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. The Heavenly Father sends His Son to earth to suffer and to learn obedience through that suffering. The Heavenly Father allows His only Son to walk through hardship and sorrow and to suffer a horrific death. The Son who deserved none of that. The Son who is loved and honored above all else was subjected to the cruelest and most wicked punishment. It was the Father's will to put Him to death in order to bring many sons to glory. God the Father sent His Son to suffer and die for us, to punish the sinless one for the sinful ones. But that discipline only lasts a short time, for after His death, God vindicates Christ as He is resurrected and He is glorified. Now, after suffering a short time, He sits now at the right hand of God the Father and rules and reigns over all creation and all who are redeemed and all who are rescued by His blood. The author of Hebrews is saying the story of Jesus, how he has suffered and died under the hand of God's providence, is not just his story, it is your story, it is my story. That in pain and in plenty, in need or in wealth, that we can trust and depend on God. And Jesus goes before us. We rest on his righteousness and his wisdom. We trust in him alone. It is God the Father through Christ and through his Spirit who is directing our lives back To Him, He's holding our hand. He's guiding us. He's teaching us. This is the way. Walk in it. And come to me, the fount of eternal glory. So as we make our way through life, what wisdom are you depending on? Is the Holy Spirit's GPS saying, this is the way. Walk in it. Do you trust that voice? Do you trust the Holy Spirit's voice? Do you look to Scripture Do you ask God for wisdom, or do you trust to make it up as you go along? Are you trusting in your own intelligence or wisdom or savvy? Trusting in the Lord and submitting to His plan allows us to live wisely in this world, to make good choices, to honor God in the good times and the hard times, and in uncertain times. God's wisdom allows us to see and choose to obtain the greatest goal, life in Christ. As the Lord shapes us with His wisdom, as we depend upon Him, as we secured it in our souls, we're able to honor Him and to find the best life. Wisdom makes our path straight. It gives us peace. It makes us successful. And it makes us more like Jesus. In the hard times, in the good times. From drought and fallow fields to bursting vats and overflowing barns, we can trust the Lord, follow His plan, and know His heart as He builds our character and shapes and informs us into His character. And then in, in true wisdom, we can surely say we will wait for the Lord and His word, and I will hope and rely. So let's walk in wisdom as we declare our dependence. And God, we don't have the wisdom. You do. And go to Him, and He will guide you. Let's pray.